Well, good morning, Bethany North. My name's Scott. I'm the lead pastor here. Our scripture today, as we continue in our Job series, comes from a few places of the, uh, from Job 2 through 4, as we talk about Job's friends today. Starting in chapter 2, verse 11, when Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with Job and comfort him. When they saw Job from a distance, they could hardly recognize him, and they began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes, and they sprinkled dust on their heads, and then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, and no one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. Picking up in Job 3, verses 1 through 5, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish. And the night that said, a boy is conceived, that day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. And then in Job 4, verse 1, then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, if someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep you from speaking? If I were you, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before him. That's verse 8. A couple places here from Job as we talk about Job's friends today. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we um, ask that you meet us in this virtual space, that you would encounter us and open us up to hear from you, to be thinking about relationships in the midst of suffering. And God, even as we talk about relationships and friendship, we're cognizant that for many of us, there's a great loneliness that people have endured or are enduring already. There's a great grief as people are carrying so much. And so God, would you use this message to bless and edify and build your people up and build your church up that we'd be more connected to each other and ultimately God, to you in our lives. In your great name we pray, amen. Well, hey, here we go. Job, our third sermon. Uh, we hope you've been listening and paying attention and enjoying these as painful as they are. Uh, some of the in-person feedback I've gotten the last couple of weeks is this is really hard, but it's really good. And we're talking about the stuff that really matters. So today we come to the portion of the series where we're going to talk about friendship. Uh, and our title for today's message is simply this, How to Be a Friend, Learning from Job's Friends. And that's really kind of a big point that we're going to be talking about both this week and next week, looking at the relationships within Job. How do we wait well in suffering? What's very interesting, if you look at the structure of Job, these friends show up at the end of Job 2, and these conversations are going to happen mm, for about 35 chapters. Some scholars say, ah, there's such a depth of knowledge that's happening here. Maybe they were sending letters to Job or others like, no, no, this is just as they sat and talked and we don't know. We don't actually care about it. What we want to know is what can we learn about friendship from this book? Because certainly if you think about 35 chapters of 42, the significant portion of Job is about these friends and about how do we deal with suffering and how do we live with our own suffering? How do we make sense of other people's suffering and relationships in general? Just that's really kind of what we're going to be focusing on today. And um, like, like a great novel, you can't rush to the end and just say, well, how does it end? I mean, we've already pointed to the end of the story. God's going to speak. Job's going to lift his eyes. But we need to kind of deal with some of the, the pain of relationships, especially in suffering. One of my favorite books, and I'm rereading it right now, is this book, The River Why by David James Duncan. It's a piece of fiction by a Pacific Northwest author about a young man who goes to live along a river and fish every day and, you know, Think about the meaning of life. Anyone that knows me is like, oh, that sounds perfect. It's a big book with small print. 
And even as I've reread it, I've been tempted at times to like jump to the end because some of the scenes at the end are just gorgeous. But it's like, no, no, the end will be sweeter for the time I take in building up to it. So like a great story, Job is unfolding before us that is going to ask us to be patient with the relationships and and the conversations that happen between these friends today. I'm going to talk about some of the structure, but... Um, just again, if, if this maybe is your first message in Job, what we've talked about to this point is that um, Job is a righteous man, the greatest man in all the earth. And the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy what the devil does. And God accepts Satan's challenge to destroy Job. And that hurts for us to even think about that. And then Satan goes out and starts to destroy Job's life. And now Job is sitting in suffering and these friends show up to, to connect with him. Now the friends, we're going to see the friends have a speech and then Job will have a speech. And then the different friend has a speech in Job. And this is a cycle that happens three times over these 35 chapters. The three friends by name, this first is Eliphaz. He's the rational one. He's like two and two equals four. The, Job, you're suffering. You must have done something wrong. Job, if you fix yourself, you can fix your pain. You can figure this out, Job. And, and regretfully, this is what many churches teach right now. That like, if you can just, you know, your life, your health, your wealth, they're guaranteed if you just kind of follow the rules. It, Eliphaz doesn't understand grace at all. And then there's Bilidad, who's religious He explains away suffering to the nature of God and humanity. It's all theology, very little compassion. He basically is saying to Job, this is a test you can pass and get more of God. In in his speeches, God is impersonal and Job is dehumanized. He has very little embracing of the mystery of God. He wants to quote scripture, but he's missing transformation. He's emphasizing the rules. And then there's the Zophar, who's very legalistic. He gets angry and hot-headed. He's very judgmental. So these three friends try to explain to Job why he suffers and why God has done this. And they get some things right. Ultimately, they do kind of a horrible job comforting Job. God himself would say, you have spoken incorrectly about me, but Job, he's spoken correctly about me. Um, But these friends are trying to kind of answer why to Job bad things happen. And anytime for us, we're trying to answer why someone is suffering, we need to be very careful. And so today's sermon is gonna ask us to analyze our filters for how we think about God and when we're suffering, how we talk about God to others. Like, do we, I wanna challenge you. Do, you, do you speak about God in one of these three ways to people in your relationship circles, to your friends or to your family, like overly rational or overly religious or overly legalistic? is there's dire warning signs if we do approach God from any one of those three perspectives. And by the end of today, we'll actually speak about a different way, a better way, but let's build up to that. And and here's kind of our point of emphasis. In watching Job's friends poorly speak about God, we'll get some words of help for us when people we love go through hard times or when the suffering happens to us because suffering will happen to us all, has happened to us all, both collectively, we're a church that just had our building burned out from underneath us. We live in an age of COVID. Collectively, we know what it is to suffer and individually. And so thus preparing ourselves for how we'll connect to God and speak both to God and about God in the midst of suffering is just paramount for a modern faith experience. 
experience. So let's start here. Very simple structure we're going to do today. We're going to talk about Job's friends, what they got right, what they got wrong, and then kind of a better way that comes from Job. So let's start here. Job's friends, what did they get right in how they approached Job's friendship? What it says they got right in chapter two is that they, they comfort Job. They come to see him. They show up. They, they say the, the end of Job 2, when they see him from a long way off, they, they see him, they recognize him and they identify his pain and then they share his pain. It says they tore their clothes, they sprinkled dust upon them, which is a you know kind of ancient Israel tradition of when you are sitting in sackcloth and ashes, when you're sharing grief. And, and if you just kind of Google like, how are Job's friends? Like there is 1 million articles online about Job's friends are the worst ever. But I'm telling you, there's some things about what these guys do that's very admirable. They play a role in Job's life. They show up. I want to I wanna start with the affirmative. These guys show up to connect with Job. Job 4.4 says, Job, your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. And now I'm sorry, troubles come to you, Job, and you're discouraged. They're speaking over his life. That's why they're there. And I don't know about you. I don't know how many of you feel lonely in a time of COVID. My hunch is many of you, certainly I've struggled with loneliness. I know a lot of men who, uh, and women too, not to be exclusive, but I've talked to a lot of men whose social systems have really broken down. COVID has stripped us of so many relationships in the church, in our neighborhoods, in our families. And, and so there's this, there's a loneliness that's kind of permeating our culture. I don't want to judge Job's friends so much where then you come away from the message day like, you know what? When somebody suffers, I'm just going to keep my distance. I don't want to be Job's friends. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I'm just going to, I'm just going to stay away that's not actually what the point of emphasis from Job is, that there is a, a better way. And these guys show up to be spiritual friends. They are there to be in support in Job's time of needs. And in a time where friendship is, is missing, like, is there some things they could do better? Sure. But I want to encourage you, don't skip being present in people's lives because you're scared of making a mistake. Don't, don't skip you know, stepping into somebody in your neighborhood or in your house church or like, hey, they're going through a hard time. They seem like they're a little bit discouraged. I, I, I notice a spirit about them, but hey, I don't want to be Job's friends. So I'm going to be over here just, you know, watching the NFL playoffs. No, like these guys show up, they engage. And the reality is, is in the church, like our ability to, to, to show up is what makes us the church. These guys model some elements that they come to be with him. Tim Keller says this, and I'll share a quote with you. How do you get through the inevitable suffering that will come to you? The answer is comfort. A shock absorber system in a car doesn't eliminate the bumps in the road, but it keeps the car from being shaken into pieces by the bumps. You have to have sources of comfort and strength when you go through suffering. Not that it eliminates suffering, but that the suffering won't actually shake you to pieces. So as... As a friend, you need to be part of bringing comfort to people. You are called by Christ to bless and edify the world, especially people who are suffering. What Paul says in Ephesians 4, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth for what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. Basically what Paul is saying is edify other people, comfort other people. The Greek word for edify is build up. It's this incredible Greek word. Are you ready for this? Okedome. Okedome. 
You love that? It's like, that sounds like Sesame Street. It's not. It's Greek. Okadome is the Greek word that Paul says, edify the church, comfort others. What does okadome mean? It literally means the building of a house on a sound foundation. And so for us to be spiritual friends, to okadome each other is to build one another up. We are called to to help encourage people, to, to build into one another, to, to have radar and eyes for people that are suffering and to be an encourager. And you just heard those of you that have been paying attention the last couple of weeks, we have ministries in this church that are doing this okedome type ministry, Stephen's ministry, one-to-one care. When you suffer, somebody from our church wants to walk with you. Love to, you'd be invited into that as a caregiver or as a care receiver. Or at North, we have deacons that step into the practical needs. They want to okedome. They want to comfort by bringing meals or doing yard work or renovating a bathroom or like, this is how God's people and at Bethany North, I've seen elements of this okedome lifestyle over the last 11 years and it's beautiful. So Job's friends do some things. I want to kind of lift those up. Like, what do they do well in the scriptures? We're going to get to what they don't do as well. But first they sit Shiva. And Shiva is an ancient Israeli practice, which means uh, Shiva comes from the word of Hebrew seven. It means when somebody's suffering to come and sit with them for seven full days. And when you would sit Shiva in ancient Israel, you would actually sit in silence for a time of spiritual and emotional healing to bond together as mourners. Nobody does that today in our culture, nobody. But these guys came and they sat in the dust with Job for seven days. They sit Shiva because grief takes time. The second thing these guys do well, and I just want to encourage you when you think about being a friend that's trying to bring comfort to the world, these guys, they listen to Job. Like there's 35 chapters of listening and they're going to lose their way in a bit, but like we got to be people to listen to each other, not formulating our next thought, but actually listen to one another. And finally, these friends, they actually saw Job. The text says they saw him and they lamented because the pain he was under. They, they saw the suffering that he was under. That's very, very helpful. Uh, Kate Bowler in her book, No Cure for Being Human, I quoted her a couple of weeks ago, but she's herself an expert in Christian theology of prosperity gospel. And then she went through chronic pain and then she went through prolonged infertility and then she went through stage four cancer. And through her suffering, she learned more about God's love for her through her community and through the way that other people around her brought comfort. And so just some words of encouragement for you as you're a comforter and other people. These are things that Kate Bowler like, these are great things to say when people are suffering is this first one. I heard about blank, your dad or your job, whatever. I'm really sorry. Like name the specifics of what you're trying to bring comfort to. And then you don't have to answer it. You don't have to give them a reason. Just say, I'm sorry for that. Just share comfort. A second thing you can say is, I don't know what to say. That's such a beautiful response in a time of grief to just name, there are no words, but I'm here with you. I'm, I'm just paying attention to the fact that you need comfort. I don't have words, but I see you. And, and then finally, just to send a message to somebody that needs comfort to say, I'm thinking of you and I'm praying for you. And church, you've heard me say this before, never say I'm praying for you unless you're praying for them. <laughs> Never. So if you're going to text, I'm praying for you, then stop and pray before you text it. But simply to reach out to somebody who needs comfort and say, hey, I'm, I'm praying for you. That's, that's incredible. 
I mean, when Heather and I lost Fisher, we were in a great season of grief. And I did have a few people reach out to me and say, God must have needed an angel. And that wasn't helpful. It was really hurtful, actually. But when people would just show up and just say, hey, I don't know what to say, but I love you. And then when they would would they would remember our grief like annually or even like three months from now or six months from now. Like this is really helpful for us to be comforters. We have a mission church. We get to comfort people that are suffering. And, and when we step in and we journey with people who are struggling, we get to sit with them in the front of the roller coaster. I've often said the best rise on the roller coaster, are the people that sit right up front. Grief puts you in the front of the roller coaster for the highs and lows. Nobody wants to be there. But when you sit with other people that are mourning, you're in the front row. You see the lows and the valleys, but you also see God break through. So be comforters. There's elements of this that are, that are really encouraging for us to just be mindful of. But ultimately, there's some things the friends got wrong, right? So what did they miss? <clears throat> As the speeches from Job uh, 3 through 27 increase in nature, it becomes clear Job's friends aren't helping Job deal with his pains. Job's friends, what did they miss? We just talked about what did they do well, but what did they miss? The reality is that your Christian relationships, your, your spiritual friends, the ones that bring comfort can never explain why you suffer. And Job's friends through their discourses start to give a reason. Remember from their rational mindset or their legalistic mindset or the religious mindset, they're trying to answer for Job why. They're trying to hand him a manual. And anytime we're trying to hand somebody a manual for their experience, we're actually trying to take control of it. Job's friends trying to control him and they, they're offering up constructive criticism. I don't know if you've ever heard that. There's no such thing as constructive criticism. Constructive criticism is actually a paradox. Construct, build something up. Criticism, tear something down. Like, you're like well, I'm just gonna give him a little constructive criticism. It's like, no, you're not. You're just gonna criticize them. Like in relationship, we're called not for constructive criticism, but to, to pay attention to people's pain to say, you don't have to sit here alone. I'm gonna pray on your behalf. I'm gonna, I'm gonna bear witness. Like, there's this story in the gospels, in the gospel of John, where the disciples looked at suffering and they said to Jesus, why is this happening? Do you remember this? This comes from John, uh, I think chapter nine, that Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, Jesus, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Somebody had to sin. Like, where do we get to blame? And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. This happened so that the works of God might be displayed in this man's life. As long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Why I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus says, who sinned? No one sinned. Not the parents, not the man. He's just blind. And then Jesus said, and I want to fix it. And he spits in the mud and puts spit-filled mud of soil on this man and washes him and cleans him. I mean, it's, it's the most beautiful healing here. Just adds his humanity to the very dust of the ground to redeem the man's blindness. And Jesus is like, let's stop trying to figure out who blew it and let's just start ministering to people in their pain. I myself don't have the power that Christ has to spit in mud to heal, but I have Christ within me to be Jesus to somebody that suffers. These friends of Job, they failed to do that. 
They, they didn't even talk to God. They talked about God. They had no questions or curiosity. We've named this series Embracing Mystery. For these guys, no mystery. They're just trying to hand Job a manual. I'm like, hey, bro, fix yourself. Stop hurting. And maybe God will redeem this. And they really, really miss it. And I think why I care, so, people are like, you seem like you're getting a little animated, Scott. I am, because I feel like as a church, we've missed this at times. This is a core aspect of our ministry to sit with the broken. Not just, oh yeah, you gave out a code in December. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the people in our faith community who are lonely, who are going through divorce, who are dealing with a drinking problem or anorexia, or they're just like, can we just see them and say, I don't have the answers, but I'll pray with you. I love you. I'm not going away. I'm not going to be Job's friends. That's what we're called to as a church. In the same section of uh, Kate Bowler's book where she describes some things to say, she also labels some things not to say. And I shared these a couple weeks ago. I want to share a few of them again because I think it's really important for us as Christians that we don't try to answer for God. We get to only point to the hope that's in Christ. So in Kate Bowler's book, she, she kind of goes through what people have told her or people are like, hey, it's going to get better, I promise. To her point, she's like, well, you don't, you don't know what that means. Like, don't, you don't have to give me an answer in that way. Or people like say what people said to Heather and I, God needed an angel or everything happens for a reason. We talked about that week one, or I've done some research and it's like, ah, you're not the doctor. Just, you can bring comfort without bringing like the latest research. Just be present in people's pain. Or, or this one people say a lot, God never gives us more than we can handle. The reality is for Job, this was more than he could handle. This was more than anyone should have to go through. Some of people in our community have been through more than the average person. There's stories that come across my work as a minister that I just think that's more than that person should have to deal with. So if I say, God will never give you more, that's not actually encouraging them. My job is to edify, okay, dome, to bring comfort that I don't have on my own by an answer, but I can just bring my presence and point to God's power in my life as just an ongoing source of friendship and support for people. That's what hurting people need. That's what some of you watching today, like that's the reminder you need. And I wanna encourage you that I've seen in my own life as a sufferer of grief that oftentimes it is our, our suffering that we've gone through that creates our greatest input and impact into the world. Like, here's a question for you. And I don't take this lightly. I really wish we could do this over a cup of coffee versus a screen. But what if God wanted to use the thing that has hurt you the most in order to bless the world uniquely? What do you mean, Scott? Well, I'll tell you my friend, Scott, who lost his son. It was like a year after I lost Fisher. And nobody knew how to, on our pastoral team, know how to reach out to this guy. I certainly didn't have answer at the time. I'm not even sure if I was on staff in the moment. I think I was training for staff. And my friend Scott was lamenting deeply the loss of his son. And I didn't have the answers. But I remember it was a worship service in this building. And I just could, I, I came up behind him as he was lamenting and pouring himself out to God. And I just prayed with him. And then later I just offered to come over to his house. And I sat at his dining room table 
and they were planning the funeral for their son. And I said, you and I are now members of the worst kind of club we would never want entrance into. It was my biggest source of hurt and it became a gateway of ministry that God used me uniquely to speak to somebody else. What if God, I don't know what you're carrying, but what if the thing that's broken your heart, what if God didn't want to give you a rational reason why it'll happen, but what if you learn to care for other people that have been through the same thing because you get it uniquely? What if God wanted to create deeper relationships through this hard thing you've gone through? Again, I'm, I'm just wondering out loud right now. In my own life, my own grief and loss has created a deeper capacity to love people the way Christ does. And, and I think there's an encouragement through Job's friends. They, they get some things right. They get some things wrong. And by the end, God's gonna do some rebuking of them. But I want us to kind of end in this place that ultimately, like we are called as a church to be comforters and to be people stepping in. But there is one that the Bible says that's closer than a brother. Proverbs 18, 24, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who stays closer than a brother. And that friend is Jesus. And, and in the fellowship of Christ, in our seasons of loneliness and our seasons of like, man, I didn't have three friends come walking to me, Scott, when I lost my job last year or when my marriage is falling apart, feeling really lonely, like this church isn't really serving me. There is an on-ramp, friends, for in your broken times, in your lonely times, that's the seasons that Christ wants to meet you and be present to you and minister to you. And I do firmly believe that it's so often when I meet with people and they're like, oh, you know when my faith really came alive? You know when they often tell me? They tell stories of their darkest days. It's not like, oh, and I, everything was perfect. And then I got the promotion and then I got engaged. And then it's like, ah, I'm telling you, oftentimes people repeat their faith stories. They're telling stories of brokenness and despair. And then God showed up. And then God showed up because when we're low in spirit, we need a breakthrough. And friends, I don't know who's listening today. I don't know what you're carrying, I, but would you, would you prayerfully consider that Christ wants to break through this season of loneliness and despair and minister to you? And there is an opportunity in the discouragement right now in your valley that God says, I am there with you. I've never left your side. I didn't cause this pain and I know you're hurting, but I can be present and your faith can build upon a strength for you to sustain you in the season ahead. Oh, are we called to minister to other people in our community? Absolutely. Let's be better comforters. Are there things to learn from Job's friends of like, man, I can try to be too rational or legalistic or religious. And ultimately I just wanna, I wanna just do a better job of kind of stepping in and being present to people. But the big idea here, friends, is there is one who is better than any comfort we can bring each other. And that's the relationship of Christ. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We read Job on this side of the cross. And as people saved by his grace and mercy, I would just pray for you, the listeners of this message, that Jesus would break through this season, this time, and there would be an intimacy, a fellowship, an okay dome, a comfort that can only come, not when a better friend or a better speech, but through Christ present in your lives, in your lives.
That's, that's what Jesus ministered. He knew what it was to hunger. He knew what it was to, to suffer grief and lose a great friend. He knew what it was to be persecuted. He, he gave his life for us. So that in each one of our valleys, when it feels like nobody knows what this is like, Jesus is saying, I do, and I'm with you. What a friend we have in Jesus. What a friend. There's an old gospel song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And it, and it was curious to me as I was studying this week that that, that song, What a Friend, I'm not going to sing it for you. It was written... Um, by a man who knew grief. He wrote the song, the hymn, what a friend we have in Jesus. I did sing it for you. There you go, bonus coverage. He wrote it after suffering greatly his loss. He, he was m- engaged to a woman and apparently hours before uh, Joseph Chivrin, hours before his marriage, she died. He immigrated at some point from Ireland to Canada. Another deep love of his life also died sackcloth and ashes, his mother back home in Ireland passing away. He had given up his money to live in poverty. He couldn't even venture home to see her. And upon the the reality that there's so much suffering and loss, he wrote the poem that would be later taken by Dwight Moody and turned into the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials? Is there trouble? We should never be discouraged. We can take it to the Lord in prayer. Precious Savior, still our refuge. We can take it to the Lord in prayer. Do our friends despise and forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms, he'll take and shield thee. Thou will find a solace there. Let's pray. Jesus, may it be so. May your church find a solace in the embrace that can only come from you and relationship with you. We pray, God, that you would increase the fellowship of your spirit and that your spirit would crack through the hardness of wherever people feel just barren right now, God. Barren relationships, uh, barren employment situations, barren hope, barren faith. God, would your, would your spirit crack through And would there be a new life, a new intimacy, a new fellowship that can only come from you? God, stir us up as we consider Job's friends, how we are called to to be people bringing comfort into the world around us. But ultimately, God, we, we declare that ultimate fellowship and hope and peace and joy will only come in our deepening relationship with you. Thank you for these moments. We pray this message will be used by your people to just find deeper hope and deeper relationship. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Let's continue in song.